Well, good evening. We're glad you're here with us again. And if you will, or hopefully you already have, let's turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. We left off last time together at the end of chapter 7. And as we get into the study this evening, we must remember an important aspect of the character of God, and that is His holiness. It is an aspect of His character that is rarely, I think, discussed and displayed in the life of the believer anymore. When we think about His holiness, we must understand that justice rolls right behind it, and that we know that the Bible clearly teaches that God will hold the world accountable for its rebellion against him. But is it possible that even within the judgment of God, he can still display his tremendous love for his creation? And the answer is yes. We must not forget that. Also, we must not forget that within the book of Revelation, though it is one of the most horrific times, no, I will say it this way. It is the most horrific time that this world will ever see. It is still a time that God's grace is available to those who will turn to him during that time. You have to ask the question, what must God do before he gets men's attention? How far does he have to go? How low does a person need to sink before they realize that they are in desperate need of a Savior apart from themselves? Many will respond and turn to God during the tribulation period, a period that the Bible speaks greatly about, meaning that there's a vast amount of information given about this last seven-year period of time that we are currently looking at together in the book of Revelation. During that time, the world will be subjected to the judgment of God. He will hold it accountable once and for all for its ultimate act of rebellion that began in the garden with Adam and Eve. But during that time, he will still allow those to come to him who will repent and place their faith and trust in Christ. Please remember this verse as we begin the study and we begin to look at God judging the world in a horrific way. We remember his holiness. We remember his justice. We remember that God had stated numerous times that the unrighteousness of man will be met with the wrath of God. But let us never forget that God also gave a way of escape of that wrath through his only begotten son. And that whomsoever shall believe in him shall not die, but have everlasting life. But let's remember this verse together. It is found in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33, verse 11. As God was pleading with his people Israel, he says, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Captured within that verse is the heart of God. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It brings no joy to my heart to see this occur. I don't revel in it. I weep for it. Why die when you can live? 
And that's why I'm so thankful for the introductory words of Chuck Swindoll as he wrote in his book on this chapter. He said, in the book of Revelation, we foresee God using an intensified series of judgment to capture the world's attention for the purpose of redemption. In fact, a major purpose of God's judgment in Revelation is to seize the world's attention when it refuses to listen to him. The redeemed martyrs in Revelation 7, which we looked at last time together, tell us that many will respond to God's end-time call. And the rest of Revelation, however, tells us that most of them will harden their hearts even more. The title of my message this evening is Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse means revelation, the, the coming, the revealing And in the doctrine of the second coming, we must understand that it works hand in hand with the judgment of God. You cannot separate the two without destroying each of the doctrine. And so as we as Christians look upon the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as Paul wrote in Titus, our blessed hope, let us also remember that those who are apart from Christ will see the wrath of God poured upon this earth. As we begin here in Revelation chapter 8, let's begin by reading the first five verses together. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about an hour, a half an hour. And then I saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saint rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings and flashings of lightning and an earthquake. We begin with a moment of silence. If you've been with us for our series and our sessions up until this point, you will realize that in chapter 7 there was a parenthetical portion of scripture. We were given a moment of pause in the break in the action, if you were, as God sealed 144,000 witnesses for himself to carry the gospel into all of the world during the tribulation period. And we see a great multitude that were saved out of the tribulation period, most assumed from the work of those 144,000s. But prior to that, in Revelation chapter 5, we were witnessing in heaven the great praise and worship of the saints and also of the angels. And then there was a moment where a declaration was made to ask if anyone was worthy to take the scroll from the Father's hands and loosen its seals. And it appeared as if no one was going to be able to respond. It appeared that no one was worthy to do so. And then John looked again on behest of the angel who said, no, but wait, there is one, a lamb. Undoubtedly, it was Jesus Christ who was worthy to take the scroll from the father's hands and begin to loosen its seals. 
And in each, at the loosening of each seal, another judgment came on upon the world. And then we came today to the seventh seal. Six had been loosed already. The seventh is now being loosed. And contained within it is a series of seven more judgments. The seven trumpets that are about to sound to bring further judgment upon the world. What is that scroll that the Lamb took from the Father? The redemptive deed of the the creation. Man forfeited it. His uh, uh, dominion over the creation in which God had given him when he sinned. And God purchased it back through the blood of his only begotten son. And now his son is able to loosen the seals of this document that will bring all things into consummation, all things back uh, to the way that they originally were and to restore all, not only mankind, but creation itself by creating a new heaven and a new earth. All of this is possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so now we watch as the seventh seal is loosened, but there's a silence in heaven. John witnesses a silence in heaven. For John himself is exiled on the island of Patmos and he is watching this vision unfold before him that the Lord is giving him of a time that is yet to come. And at this moment, there's a break, there's a pause, there's a silence. And it must have been incredibly noticeable for him to record it in the manner in which he did. And it was only a pause before the storm. It was that silence that they often speak of, undoubtedly similar to those silences before a tornado hits. A moment that you know something is coming, but you cannot see it or feel it. The praise and worship of God ceased for that moment. In lieu of what is about to happen next, throughout the Bible, silence in Scripture is indications of respect, submission, and anticipation. Something is about to happen. As one commentator wrote, he said, silence before the great storm of God's wrath is upon us. The seventh seal itself contains its own uh, no judgment of its own. Rather, it contains, can, rather it contains a, and serves to introduce the trumpet judgments themselves. Silence has always been a predicator to God's judgment. Zephaniah 1.7 states, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Zephaniah, and later in that chapter, wrote, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. The day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blasts and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind, he writes, so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither shall silver nor gold be able to deliver them 
on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Zechariah wrote in Zechariah 2.13, Be silent, all flesh before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. That's what we're anticipating in this silence. It's the moment of pause before the storm. John goes on then to say that at that moment of silence, the prayers of the saints are brought before God. Then I saw, verse 2, the seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a gold censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and earthquakes. Do you ever wonder what happens to the prayers that you pray? Obviously, we all, we've prayed throughout the course of our Christian life. In the tabernacle and in the temple, there was an altar in which incense burned that represented the prayers of his people. It was at this altar that Zechariah first discovered that his wife was going to give birth to John the Baptist as he was tending there at the altar before the Lord. And as these prayers go up before the Lord, we ask the question, what did they contain? What were they prayers of? I think of the very first verse of the prayer that the Lord taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What does he go on to say after praising him and placing him in the proper place before us? He goes on to say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I think of the prayers that were offered by the martyrs in Revelation 6, 9 through 11. As John wrote when he saw, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given white robes and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. There is nothing wrong with a for a Christian to pray for justice, as long as we allow God to administer that justice. I am gravely concerned when I read many of the articles and the Facebook posts that are being rendered daily on social media in the light of the wake of the certain current events that have happened. How many Christians are asking for God now to, ju- to judge the unrighteousness of this world? 
But within their writings, there is no mercy, there's no grace, and there doesn't seem to be any remembrance of themselves before coming to Jesus Christ. We place ourselves, I think, in a dangerous position because he says, vengeance is mine, says it the Lord. God is the ultimate judge. Christ will deal with this fallen world. These martyrs have lifted a a prayer before the Lord that was appropriate because they had laid down their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ, now waiting for the day of the consummation and the completion of all things to the new heavens and the new earth. But let us be careful. Let us remember that as we ask for God's judgment and God's, you know, uh, justice, that we aren't forgetting our own sin. That we are being honest with ourselves in our hearts. Remembering those of our loved ones who still yet do not know Christ. I can't tell you how often I have been to prayer meetings over the last 30 years and people cry out saying, oh, let the rapture happen now. I am so glad that those prayers weren't answered because many of you may not be sitting here tonight. God, come and judge all things. I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful for every day that the grace of God is once again available. Because when he judges, he's going to judge definitively, decisively. And it is going to be in finality. He is going to bring about the end of all things. Let's keep things in perspective. That obviously our God is a long-suffering God we all agree with that? The travesties that he must see. Many of us can no longer watch the evening news because the number of difficulties and tragedies we see and horrific events that we see one right after another. Just think of that. We're only hearing it from our local perspective. God sees everything all around the world all the time. Things we'll never know about. Does God care about those individuals who are losing their life to ISIS? Absolutely, he does. But he also cares about their persecutors. And it's hard for us to fathom. I think of Paul himself, killing Christians, imprisoning them, then coming to saving faith himself. Let's keep everything in the perspective of God's perspective. God's judgment will come just at the right time, just in the right way. But until that day, you know what we're going to do? We're going to be about our Father's business. We're going to live for the glory of God and we're going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to whoever will listen. That's what we're going to do. We're going to do it with love and humility and mercy and grace. And the same that was offered to us, we are going to offer to other individuals. Is sin serious? Absolutely it is. But we're all sinners, right? There was only one perfect individual that could condemn sin in the manner in which he did. And Jesus yet said when he came, I have not come to condemn this world for this world is already condemned. I've come to save it. I want to keep things in perspective. I want us to tame our frustrations. I want us to turn those frustrations into prayer as we get down on our knees and ask God to work as we ask God for his grace, as we ask for the gospel to continue to go forward. Why do I say all of this? Because these prayers are now going to be answered. 
And when they are answered, they're going to be answered in a finality. There's nothing wrong to earnestly wait for the Lord's return. Just remember what it's going to bring. There's nothing wrong with seeing it as a blessed hope. Just remember what it's going to bring. There's nothing wrong to wait in eager anticipation of it, but just remember what it's going to bring. And so I say that again, as I said it earlier in our study, because as these prayers are going up before God from the, I believe, the saints that have been murdered for the gospel of Jesus Christ, martyred for it under this altar, lifting them up to the Lord. He is now hearing them and he is responding to them and justice is being proclaimed and he is revealing himself. Look look with me in verse 5. Thunders and rumblings, flashings of lightning and earthquake, almost very similar to the same way that he fell upon Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. And then it begins. God begins to pour out his judgment through a series of trumpet blasts. A trumpet is an instrument that is used throughout the Bible. It is used to call people together to announce wars and announce special times of gathering. You can find that in Numbers 10. But we also saw it used at the giving of the law. When a king was anointed, when Jericho fell, described as the voice of the Lord in Revelation 1, and at the rapture of the church, there was a trumpet blast. And we see that now God is declaring his judgment upon the earth through these seven trumpet blasts. And in the seventh trumpet, we'll discover that it unfolds in seven more judgments of bowls being poured out upon the earth. Let us begin in verse 6. Now the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And the first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown down upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. And all the green grass was burned up. There is no doubt that these judgments are preceded by the prayers of those that were brought before God. As the angel then cast down to the earth, he threw down from the altar the fire from the incense. It is now manifesting itself in these seven trumpet blasts on the earth. In the very first one, we see hail, fire mixed with blood, very similar to the same plagues that plagued Egypt in, in Exodus. We, need, we see now not locally uh, localized to Egypt alone as it was in Exodus, but now poured upon the whole world. And as these things come down, the very first thing that God destroys And it says very clearly here, a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. It is interesting as God now begins to systematically dismantle those things that man is dependent upon. Those same areas of this world that gave man his prosperity, God now begins to remove from man. 
It is in the prosperity of man that man often departs from God, becomes arrogant before God, and says to God, we have no longer any need for you. God now takes, seems to be taking back those things that he gave man to allow him to prosper. And as we see here, a third of the earth, a third of the trees, and all the green grass, as one commentator wrote, the target for this judgment is green vegetation, the trees, the grass, one third of which is burned up. One can well imagine how this would affect not only the balance of nature, but also the food supply. The Greek word for trees usually means fruit trees, and the destruction of the pasture lands would devastate the meat and milk industry. God is taking back, he is eliminating those things that allowed man to prosper. In the second trumpet, in verse 8, the second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And the third of the sea became like blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. So the second judgment is now upon the oceans. As the rivers in Egypt flowed with blood, now we see the oceans, one third of them became like blood. One third of the living creatures died and a third of the ships were destroyed. As he continued to write in his commentary, he said, Considering that the oceans occupy three-fourths of the earth's surface, you can imagine the extent of this judgment. The pollution of the water and the death of so many creatures would greatly affect the balance of life in the oceans, and this would undoubtedly lead to further insoluble problems. For example, I thought this was interesting since ships are mentioned here. In 1981, we had a 24,867 ships registered as merchant ships, ships that took freight all around the world. Can anyone imagine how many ships are on the ocean currently today? 86,300. If one third of those would be destroyed, 26,000 ships would be sunk. I just give this to you to bring a little bit of this into perspective for you, how devastating this would be. How many of you like crab? Lobster? Good stuff, huh? You pay a high price, right? I'll never forget one of the anniversaries that Dean and I celebrated together since we just recently celebrated our 21st. We went to a restaurant. This was early on in my ministry, and I wasn't making much money as a pastor, But it was our anniversary, so we went to a nice restaurant to celebrate our anniversary. And as I was looking through the menu, I chose my dinner, my selection, and I asked the waiter for it. I said, I'll have this one, the surf and turf. It sounds really good. And after I ordered it, my wife said to me, did you realize that it said market price? He said, sure, they're going to go to the market and they're going to price it out for me. Oh my goodness. I just finished washing dishes last week. No, it was unbelievable what it cost. I can't even imagine what this would do to the economic, you know, 
cash flow of our world society today if such a devastation occurred. Watch how God is systematically removing these things. Remember how God systematically dismantled Egypt in the plagues that finally rendered the freedom of his people. That's what we are seeing God do here amongst all the world. In the third trumpet, a star from heaven falls. We don't know what the great mountain was. He is describing it as something like, so he is seeing something, John is seeing something, and he's describing it to the best of his ability. In verse 10, we come to the third angel who blew his trumpet. And a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers. Now the fresh water is being affected. And on the spring waters, and the name of the star was Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Wormwood is a herb that will pollute any fresh water source. It is a dangerous herb and can have a detrimental effect upon the waters. But notice again. Now he is eliminating freshwater supplies. And a third of them are being destroyed. There is already water issues here in the United States of America. All you have to do is read the Chicago Tribune. You'll discover how many people want to tap into the Great Lakes. But can you imagine at that moment as God is dismantling man's prosperity bringing him to his knees. Now the waters are being tainted. A third of them, all of the fresh water supplies. And this wormwood causing the waters to become undrinkable. In the Old Testament, Testament Jeremiah used this as a term for sorrow and great calamity. As one wrote, if the people who drank from these waters are in danger of dying, what must happen to the fish and other creatures that live in these waters? And what would happen to the vegetation near those rivers? If the ecologists are worried about the deadly consequences of water pollution today, what will they think when the third trumpet blows? This is something we need to consider. And then the fourth trumpet blows. Notice this, verse 12. It's going to get worse. And the the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and the third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining. And likewise, a third of the night. Now he's reducing daylight. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but the sun is really needed for things to grow, right? He is completely dismantling everything that they would be dependent on. In the reduction of the daylight by one-third, there would be a great disruption in energy available to support a life cycle. Not to mention the vast changes in temperature that would take place. Global warming? We haven't seen nothing yet. But Amos wrote about this. He said this, Woe to those who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or when he went into a house 
and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Or as Joel wrote in his, in his letter to Israel, he said, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on the holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness that there has spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful people there likewise has never been before, nor will there ever be again after them, though throughout all the years of all generations." Fire devours before them, and behind them flame burns. The land is like a garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. And then John writes after this fourth blast, he says this in verse 13, look with me. Then I look, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice. As we saw earlier, one of the angels was like an eagle before God, and he flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. And at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. There are still three more judgments to go. And the judgments only intensify as we proceed. These were natural disasters, natural calamities that were brought about by God. They did not have a natural beginning, but they affected nature itself. And notice how much has been destroyed up until this point. And then think about how we are pushing our world to the brink of it no longer being able to support all of our consumption. Not that it's not capable of sustaining our needs, but it's no longer capable of sustaining our consumption. What do I mean by that? Because we consume much more than we ever need, don't we? And God's going to limit that. He's going to remove that aspect of this world so we can no longer be reliant upon it as part of his judgment. These are all things that he gave Adam and Eve so that they could prosper. He created so that they could, you know, flourish. And now he is bringing them back. He is destroying them little by little. But as we get into the fifth and the sixth trumpet, one of the most difficult chapters to interpret, it has to be chapter nine. Because in this chapter, we are now introduced to demonic forces that God releases upon the face of the earth to bring about nothing but pure pain, suffering, and death. Let us read. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened that shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from that shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or the green plant or any tree, 
but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it, is, when it stings someone. And in those days, the people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, it looked like a gold crown, and their faces were like human faces, and the hair was like women's hair, and their teeth was like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates uh, like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses running into battle. They have tails that sting like scorpions, and the power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek it is Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two more woes still to come. An angel is given a key to a bottomless pit. Coming up through the King James tradition, we knew this bottomless pit as the abyss. And we first learned about it by Jesus himself in Luke 8.31 when he confronted an individual that had a farm full of swine, you remember? And he had just cast, he was just about to cast out demons. He saw a farmer with swine, which he wasn't supposed to have. So he allowed the multiple of demons to enter into the swine and the swine ran into the, to the sea and they perished. But what did the demon say before that? He said, if I may quote, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. This, bot- this bottomless pit, this shaft that is open. Peter said something interesting in 2 Peter 2.4 when he said, For God did not spare the angels when they sinned. And I believe that is referring to the angels that came down in Genesis 6 to mingle with women, to bring about what the Bible calls Nephilim. But those angels that came down, he cast them into hell, which is a very specific word. In most of our English translations, they use the word hell, and that is accurate, but it's Tartarus. It means the lowest depth of that place in hell. Committed to them to chains of gloomy darkness and to be kept until judgment. So twice now we have this mentioned that this exists. For the Antichrist and the beast himself will come out of this pit. Revelation 7, 11, 7, I should say. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them, who, on them and conquer them and kill them. In Revelation 20, 1 through 3, this bottomless pit is talked about again. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hands the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon and the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him in once again the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. So this abyss, a place where demons had been kept 
has now been released. And I believe what is being described there is just that. Demonic hordes that are about God's business, even in their act of rebellion against him, they are now serving him by fulfilling judgment, his judgment upon the world. And that's what we see taking place here. As he has this vivid description of them, Now, if you grew up in the 1970s, I'm dating myself, you'll realize that many have tried to parallel this with some kind of military equipment. And there were many who believed that the description here were helicopters in a book called The Late Great Planet Earth uh, by Hal Lindsey. I don't believe these are helicopters at all. I believe that these are demons, that God, through this fifth trumpet blast, is releasing on the earth and they are causing torment only to those who are not sealed. Those sealed, those 144,000 that we read about in Revelation 7, are exempt from their torment. They're only tormenting those who do not have that seal. And they're stung and they're tormented. They want to die. It is so bad, but they can't. So it is very interesting. The image of the locust is also interesting. Some believe that this was just simply locusts. I've never seen a locust like that. And I'm very thankful I haven't, actually. But I can't tell you that I'm a big fan of insects, are you? I mean, there used to be a television show... Uh, I forgot the name of it. Maybe you remember it, but they used to push people in a fear factor. That's what it was called. And they used to make people do things that they would never naturally do to see how far they would go before they bailed on the project and, you know, lost the contest and so forth. And there was this one episode that my wife and I were watching and both of us were on the couch and we were like this, you know, we're like, how is that possible? They laid a person in this big, big trunk and then they poured all kinds of cockroaches on her. Just zillions of them. They're in her ear, in her hair, in her nose. She had roaches everywhere. And Dina's like, no way, I would never do that. I said, you wouldn't even do that for me, honey, to get the million dollars? I don't, I wouldn't do that for you for $10 million, you know. Locusts are horrible. Now remember the plagues of Egypt when the Egyptians were just pelted with insects. They were everywhere, everywhere, and you couldn't get rid of them. Where you sleep, where you eat, where you sit, where you walk, everywhere, just loaded with insects. The image of locusts have been used as a, a method of God's judgment throughout the Old Testament, in actual locusts. So it's no doubt to me that John would use this to describe these things but their description is vastly superior to any simple insect. This is actually a demonic being that he is describing here. And God is going to allow this demonic activity on the earth. But if that wasn't enough, if we look throughout the Old Testament, we discover that from the book of Exodus to the curse of Deuteronomy 28 to Joel chapter, 20, uh, Joel chapter 1 and 2, locusts have plagued everywhere. But they have been confined. They've been restrained. They are not here to harm the grass, 
whatever greenery is left from the first judgment that has taken place that wiped out a third of it, nor were they to touch those who were sealed by God. And as one commentator wrote, I like to read this to you, lest the reader think that with the release of these demonic locusts, the plagues have somehow exhausted themselves. But John now announces that only the first woe is past. There are still two yet to come. In the Phillips translation of the Bible, it catches the vividness of the scene. The first disaster is now past, but I see two more approaching, and the end draws near. There is a marked increase in the intensity and the severity of the trumpet plagues, and that brings us to the sixth trumpet, which we find in verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. On the corner of the altar before God, there were four horns, and that was used to strap down the animal. It was part of the decoration of it. You could probably find pictures of it. Saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. And the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. That equals 200 million. And I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision. Again, describing it with the words that he had. And those who rode them wore breastplates in the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And their head, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouth. By three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. So the third of what was left of mankind is now killed again. And by fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths, that's the instruments of their deaths. For the power of the horse is in their mouths and in their tails. And from their tails are like serpents with heads. And by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who, do not, who were not killed by these plagues did not repent from the works of their hands. So if things hadn't gotten bad enough. The identity of the four angels that are restrained at the four points of the Euphrates rivers is unknown. Most believe that they are demons because the demons would have to be restrained. Angels we never find are restrained, meaning angels that are working on behalf of God and good standing before God. But these supernatural demons are released. Remember, demons are just that. They're angels that had fallen with Satan at his fall. That's who they are. And so these four are released. I do not believe they are the same four that are holding the four corners of the wind that are mentioned in Revelation 7.1 because of their restraints. They are chained. They are bound. But then when they are released, notice it's released at a certain time. It says here very clearly. So the four angels who had been prepared for the what? The hour, the day, the month, the year were released and, a, and uh, released to kill a third of mankind. So their purpose was to be restrained until the going forth. Until this sixth trumpet blow. 
and they bring about a horde of 200 million. Again, the, the, identity, of the identity of the horde is either, uh, it falls into one of two camps by most people who are serious scholars of Revelation. Camp one says these are firm, further demonic beings. Camp two says this is a human military instrument in the hand of God. Now, obviously, we've already seen demonic hordes released in the first 12 verses. So this certainly could be demonic uh, creatures here at this time that are going forth in such a vivid description as John is trying to describe them. But we do have precedence for a man army. We know that God in the Old Testament often used other nations to come against Israel as what? Instruments of judgment. Could God raise up an army of 200 million? Well, China boasts of that right now, that they have 200 soldiers, 200 million soldiers ready to go. So I guess it is possible. But again, we have this vivid description. So the likelihood of it is more likely that it is further demonic creatures. But the potential for it to be some kind of horde or some kind of army does have merit. Why do I say that? Well, not only do we have an example of that today, but in Revelation 16, 12, it says here that the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, its waters dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. So it is possible. But again, I go to that description, which would certainly be something more like the description of the demonic creatures that are above, who have a king named Abaddon or Apollyon, who most identify, and I agree with, is Satan himself. But at this point, with the individuals killed in this last trumpet blow, the the sixth trumpet blow, from the time that the judgments have started until now, and most believe we are about three and a half years into this tribulation period, one half of the population of the world has been killed. God's judgment on the earth. But notice that those who are left in verse 20, after everything that they have seen and experienced, it appears as it did with Pharaoh, to harden their hearts. And the rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of murders of their sorceries or their sexual immorality, thefts, I should say. As we will continue on in our study of Revelation, as the judgments of God pour forth, the resistance of man and the rebellion of man will grow even deeper. How low must man go before they turn to God? Maybe you yourself know someone that you have been praying for earnestly and hoping that they would finally come to saving faith in Christ. And you knew, just knew in your heart that the path that they were on was going to destroy them. 
And after time has gone by and that has occurred and you see that the lifestyle that they've chosen to live and the rebellion against God that they've chosen to exhibit has just devastated their lives. And just when you think, oh, they can't go any lower, they've got to cry out for God now. They don't. That appears to be the sentiments that we're reading here. They get hardened, more furious, more rebellious against God, shaking their fist at him, continuing with their worship of demons and idols of gold and silver, sexual immorality, sorcery, which is the word pharmakia, which means drugs, murders, lawlessness. They just continue on. And in the wake of all of this destruction, one catastrophe after another, I remember the morning that we drove to church and we, the tsunami hit right outside of um, the Philippines, Indonesia. And all those people were lost in one swoop. Or Katrina, when that hit. These, can you imagine the devastation at this point? Half of the world's population is now gone. The, 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 the vegetation, the sea, the rivers, gone. The sun, darkened. It's, what a catastrophe. And you would hope and you would think, as the witnesses were going forth, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would turn, but they hardened their heart against God. Pharaoh hardened his heart countlessly against God until he came to a point where God hardened it. I think it's an incredibly dangerous thing to do to harden your heart against God. Often God brings about difficulties not to harden our heart, but to soften it, to break it, that we would cry out for him. But a half of the world's population is gone. The Half of the natural world is gone at this point. And yet, there is still hope. Because God is working. And God is bringing about all things according to his master plan. And it is all playing forth. I'd like to close with these words from a dear pastor. But God is working out his plan. And neither the sins of mankind nor the schemes of Satan will hinder him from accomplishing his will. Things don't look bright for God's people during the middle of the stages of this prophetic journey, but they still will be overcomers through the power of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let's remember these last words together. Things will not look bright for God's people during the middle stages of the prophetic journey, but they will still be overcomers through the power of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is nothing too big for God to handle. And what we're seeing in our world today, as I recently was told by an individual in whom I was sharing Christ with, and we were discussing the realities of hell, and she was convinced that this is hell already. I said, my friend, This is nothing compared to hell. In fact, this is nothing 
compared to what is still yet to come upon the face of this world. But God has made a way, a way out, a way out from underneath his wrath, a way out from the imprisonment of hell for all eternity. And that way out is found in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father but through him. And even in this, even in this judgment, I see the love of God bringing about justice, righteousness, and holiness, and grace, allowing anyone who will come to come. Anyone to come that will come. Unfortunately, we're discovering by this point, they are hardening their hearts, just as Pharaoh did. Such similarities, such parallels. But we know from Revelation 7, that a great multitude will be saved through this time. 